When you talk about a leadership team, right? It's never one person. It's the whole team that brings it together. That uh, it's no one size fits all uh, environment. I think that for every extrovert, you need an introvert and the introverts don't have to be the people at the back of the room being quiet, right? I can stand in front of a group of people, not my favorite thing in the world to do, but I can get up in front of people and, and I have, I have confidence in, in my ability and what I do. But, uh, I think that it, it takes both types. I think it takes a, a well-rounded leadership staff to make sure that you're as vivacious and energetic as you can be, and that you have the support and dedication in the background as well. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? I think you know. I have no idea how you're doing it. One more time. It's fantastic. How are you? Oh, I'm doing really well. Really excited for our guest today and the conversation that we're going to have with her. But first, my question for you is, do you remember your earliest fond memory of visiting a theme park, amusement park, or attraction of some sort? Uh, goodness, the earliest. It would have to have been with my parents at either SeaWorld or Geauga Lake. Okay. We lived right in that area of Ohio at the time. I remember really enjoying the, the um, they had a, a water ski stunt show at SeaWorld. Hmm. And I really liked that. And they also had a, it was just a, uh, like a glass enclosure of a, like a, a mummified shark or something, but I just loved looking at it. It was a great white shark. It was huge. And, you know, I just loved walking by it. Um, but do you, do you also, remember how old you were at this time? I don't, I was young. I was, okay. young. you know, probably seven or eight, nine, okay. 10 in that, in that area. Yeah. 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 How about you? Cool. Well, first of all, I do remember that stunt show at SeaWorld. I remember seeing that when I was eight years old, uh, SeaWorld, Ohio, outside of Cleveland, yes. uh, which we're going to, we're going to touch on a little bit in this, uh, in this episode, but you know, what's funny is, uh, you know, I was born in Miami and my parents, you know, took me to Disney, I think a couple of times before I even remember and Bush Gardens in Tampa. Mm. Uh, so it's, it is kind of funny that I don't remember my earliest visits to parks, but with that said, as I grew up and kind of got into the, like you said, that seven, eight, nine range, I remember those being really fond memories that I had, even if I was terrified of riding a roller coaster. You know, I, I remember my first cheese on a stick when I was seven years old. And it was my first visit to Cedar Point. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, I remember the next summer, my dad took me and I was terrified to do anything on that same trip. We, you know, we went to SeaWorld and, uh, you know, and, and Cleveland then too. But there is something really important to notice when we think about these fond memories, especially as it relates to what we do because sometimes we can get so caught up in the day-to-day -day of our operation and making sure that things are extremely efficient and making sure that all the boxes are being checked on the checklist. 
But at the end of the day, this is what we're selling. And that's, that's these lifelong memories of people who might have that seven, eight, nine-year-old that is out for a day of fun, but that is going to really maybe come back in many stories many years down the road, decades down the road, as they're sharing those early experiences that are directly related to the location that they visited. Well, and I think sometimes it's it's easy for us to forget that sometimes these experiences can be very simple, mm-hmm. uh, but still very memorable, right? Yeah. Um, I remember at Geauga Lake, they had one of those um, those barrels that you could walk through and it was spinning. It was like in an old fun house and it was all yeah. made of wood and everything. And I just remember that being the most difficult thing to do. I couldn't keep my balance and everything. It's a cylinder, right? That's rolling, you know, it's not a lot of technology. I mean, the park has been there for over hundred years. Um, but that's one of the memories that sticks with me as well. And part of it too, is because of who you're with at the time. And I think that's a big part of our industry. And we've talked about this almost ad nauseum is bringing people together and, you know, doing things as family and friends. Uh, But being there with your friends, with your family, that amplifies the experience of how cool it is. So would you say then that attractions are essential? (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. We've done that. (laughs) We've talked about that plenty of times. I I think that that's a really good setup for the interview that we have today with Bridget Bywater, who is the vice president and general manager of Kings Dominion in Doswell, Virginia. Uh, Amazing career story through Cedar Fair uh, in so many different roles at so many different parks in so many different departments. Uh, It's just amazing to hear her story from then till now, the memories that she shares from her childhood, and then specifically her leadership style today and how she got to where she is. Well, and I think what's so important to kind of take away from this, if you're someone that loves the industry and you're kind of thinking about making this a career, I don't want to say this is a good template or a roadmap, but listen to what Bridget has to say about kind of taking those opportunities, not always necessarily feeling like you're ready or you're, you know, you're, you're going to be great at something, but take the opportunity to learn and to grow. And, you know, I would imagine that she would not be in the position she's in right now had she not had all those different experiences. Had she come up just through rides, she might not be a GM right now. Right. But she's got a really well-rounded experience with admissions and water park and safety and security that that allows her to kind of see the bigger picture, which I think is critical of a leader at that level. Yeah, I know. So I think that, you know, this was just such a fascinating conversation. I learned so much. I could not write down quotes quickly enough of of the many nuggets of wisdom that she shared. And uh, I'm really excited. I know you're really excited to share this interview with our audience. So I would say let's just get to it. Here we go. Bridget Bywater from King's Dominion. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today, Bridget? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here. We can't wait to get into this conversation. First of all, can you kind of give us a a background of of your background, kind of your history in the industry? Oh, gosh. Um, You know, my... uh... My my parents actually worked at a local amusement park, I, and uh, they always looked back on it fondly and talked to, talked about their job there. And I knew from an early age that uh, I wanted to follow in their footsteps and run the rides like they did when they were kids. And uh, you know, I I I I I got hired there and really kind of found myself. I'm a very introverted, quiet person, and I found that. 
Um, it allowed me to sort of develop outside my shell and, and get better at talking in front of people and that sort of thing. And, and I just grew from there and, and, uh, I, I, golly, I, I worked in rides and I, I had an opportunity to switch over and do admissions for several years. Um, I was in college and thought I wanted to do human resources. So I did that for a couple of years at the park, uh, decided I'm much more of a people than a paper person. So I got out of that, uh, uh, got into, gosh, when I was hired full-time right, out, right outside of college, I did admissions and park services management for a while. Um, I, for some reason, they decided to send me over to the water park. And so I, I, you know, I went over to the water park for a couple of years. And then at some point, because I knew CPR, they decided safety would be a good avenue for me to learn. And, and, uh, the safety came security and I did security and safety for almost a decade. And then I had an opportunity to get back to operations and had a corporate role in there with operations. And just one thing led to another. And here I am today as the vice president and general manager of, uh, King's Dominion out here in Doswell, Virginia. Bridget, that's a, that career path is particularly inspiring, especially for people who might be early on in their career or start out as a fan or an enthusiast, or in your case, your parents were, were in the industry prior to that, and then really starting at the front line, uh, and then up to the VP and general manager role. Is that uh, is that typical of most people who are in your role these days, or are there a lot more, uh, you know, bringing in from the outside, or is this kind of promote from the promote from within at pretty pretty typical, whether within Cedar Fair or within you know your colleagues throughout the industry? You know, that's actually a really good question. I think early on in, in amusement park management history, right, we, we were hiring people from outside of the industry because it was just a developing industry. But uh, luckily enough, as, as our industry has grown, um, it's allowed people like me um, to develop from within. And I think a good solid majority of our staff have all grown up that through, through at Cedar Fair have grown up through the industry, started out either as a kid in high school or, or college and, and uh, really developed from there. Uh, so yeah, I think that um, if, if somebody is, is really interested in it and, and dedicated and takes to it, I absolutely think it is uh, a, a path that can be taken for sure. It's, it's open to anyone if you put your heart and mind to it. Bridget, I'm curious. I didn't know that your parents had worked there before. What did they do at the park? Oh, golly. Uh, my my father worked at the Zambezi Zinger, which is a ride that was uh, at Worlds of Fun in Kansas City. And my mother operated the Silly Serpent, uh, which was close by it. And so they, act they actually met at the amusement park the first year it was open. And, you know, one thing led to another. And here they are married all these years later, and, and I'm doing what I'm doing. So yeah, they, uh, they, had a, they had a great time of it and have nothing but positive things to say about their time there as well. Fun. So there's there's a question that we ask guests on occasion, and we usually save it towards the end, but I feel like this is actually a, a more fitting time for it. And given that you kind of grew up just seeing the industry so much, do you think that if you weren't in this industry, what do you think you'd be doing if you had taken a different career path? <laughs> Well, I mean, I was a chemistry major my first several years in college because I wanted to be a geochemist. So I am certain I would have been sitting in a lab or somewhere, and this is much more exciting. And again, what I learned working through the amusement park industry is that being around people is such a motivating thing. And so, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I would have, I would have probably been some sort of chemist. 
That's interesting. Bridget, you mentioned that you were an introvert, but then people, you know, are so motivating. And sometimes for introverts, it feels like it should be the opposite, right? That you, you may want to be a little bit more by yourself. So how do you kind of balance that, especially as a leader of a large theme park? You know, I think that, um, you know, there's two leadership styles. Uh, one is, is being in the front, right? Standing in the front of the room and being the person that everyone follows. And the other is being the person at the back that supports and, and, and helps guide the team forward. And I think that um, extroverts and introverts approach that differently. And I think that I've always found that uh, I don't need to be the loudest person in the room. I just need to support the people who are right and and are going to bring us up and be better. And I think that what what I what I bring to the table is just my my absolute absolute drive and dedication to supporting the team around me and and just making sure that they are the best they can be and that the at the park is benefiting from their from their from everything that they're good at. Yeah. With the two leadership styles that you mentioned, kind of the front of the room and the back of the room, uh, are there often different outcomes from that based on those leadership styles? Or if those two different types of leaders have the same goals, does it usually end up with, you know, kind of the, the same goals being accomplished or does it tend to be different? You know, I, I, I think that uh, when you talk about a leadership team, right, it's never one person, it's the whole team that brings it together, that uh, it's no one size fits all uh, environment. I think that for every extrovert, you need an introvert and the introverts don't have to be the people at the back of the room being quiet, right? I can stand in front of a group of people, not my favorite thing in the world to do, but I can get up in front of people and, and I, have, I have confidence in, in my ability and what I do. But uh, I think that it, it takes both types. I think it takes a, a well-rounded leadership staff to make sure that you're as vivacious and energetic as you can be and that you have the support and dedication in the background as well. Yeah. So Bridget, what was it like taking over King's Dominion uh, when you got there and you know, learning the team and kind of learning the park and, and everything? What was that process like for you? You know, this is, we have a well-tenured staff here. We're exceptionally lucky because the, the staff here have um, such a vast amount of knowledge and history at the park. And so I, I think just coming in here is a fresh perspective. I probably asked more questions. I always do when I switch jobs, I ask more questions than people probably want to answer. And, and I think that, um, you know, I learn the processes and um, the culture as I go forward, but I also think I challenge people to think outside of the paradigms that they have lived in in the past. And, you know, I, again, it's just such a, a wonderful park here that I'm, I'm very lucky also coming at the uh, sort of the tail end of COVID and um, starting to reopen and, and get everything as back on track as we've been able to do. Um, and I had a, a solid understanding of the COVID background through my corporate work that uh, I think it it, it allowed me the opportunity to, to, to learn it as, as I could and, um, and also the opportunity for the staff to kind of accept me and move forward uh, together as a team. 
One of the things that we're curious about too, is that with your experience with Cedar Fair, it is across multiple different parks, as well as from the corporate level as well. So your view, your perspective of the company is probably quite different from someone who might anchor at one park and stay there for their entire career, or someone who might be at corporate and not be out in the parks. Do you notice that the different parks have their own unique identity and flavor while at the same time tying in a lot of the Cedar Fair culture? Or is there more of the culture that kind of is fed from corporate that leads that? Or is it really a good balance of the two at each location? You know, I have to be honest, I think it's a great balance. I, in my corporate role, I had the opportunity um, to travel and work with the operating teams at every one of the parks and, and really be able to, to learn that, uh, their, their sort of team philosophy. And what I found is that, uh, history of course drives a lot of, um, how people do things, whether they've done it before or tried it before, or certain, um, experiences have driven them forward in a different direction. But I found that really at the end of the day, everyone, all of the parks come together and and fit under our corporate philosophy of just making people happy and and uh, I think that it again it's just a, a sort of how both of them come together that the corporate uh, philosophy drives that in, in a way from a consistency standpoint and sort of taking everything to the next level uh, but the, but it allows our parks to operate independently individually from a culture standpoint and, and really make it work within their teams. And again, because some of these parks, we've got associates who have been there 40 or more years. And so to be able to embrace not only Cedar Fair, but the history of the parks has uh, been uh, great from for all the parks. And I would also think the location would have something to do with it. You know, people in Minnesota are different than some people in California or Virginia and things and, and Sandusky. So um, I would think that would play into the, the culture as well. Uh, one of the things I'm curious about is since you've worked at the park level and at the corporate level, how have those, those experiences influenced each other? Like when you got to corporate, did your park level um, experience, you know, influence that? And then now that you're back at the park level working at corporate, has that influenced your, your current experience? I, 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 I have said uh, numerous times how lucky I am to have had the opportunity to hold a corporate role and not, not just any corporate role, but the one I had as, as, as the corporate director of operations, because I had so much contact and, and influence within um, our operating environment. So I think that anytime you change jobs, you change perspectives and you're able to see the world from a different standpoint. Sometimes you just shift a little bit or you, you, you start to grow. So you see a bigger and bigger picture. Um, sometimes you, your whole life is turned upside down and you get to see the world from a whole new angle. And I think that um, the opportunity to work at a couple of different parks and work in the corporate world, and of course, in all the different divisions, it, just every time you change jobs, I think it makes you a little bit more well-rounded. I certainly think uh, working in the in the corporate world and going through a global pandemic with everyone else, it 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 helped me probably become less flappable. I, it's it it's not that it's impossible to surprise me, but I've had the opportunity to experience things um, probably at a larger scale than I would have if I had just come straight up through uh, an individual department at a single park. 
Can you actually share a little bit of that role of director of operations at the corporate level? Because I think a lot of people uh, who are listening might think of operations at the local level, which might mean the actual day to day. But at the corporate level, I've got to imagine that, that it's a little bit different, maybe a little bit more kind of high level overview of operations versus kind of making sure everything's ready to go every single morning for park opening. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true, right? You 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 see the wor- the world from the from the blinders that you're handed, right? Uh, yeah, for sure operations at a park level is what do I do to get the park open on a daily basis and provide the the best experience. In in a corporately in a way it's the same thing. What can I do to <laughs> make the operation better and seamless on this particular day? But it's a lot more strategic um, and a lot less tactical. So you're not just thinking about one park, you're thinking about uh, several. Um, you're not just thinking about one division even just because I was the corporate director of operations. Operations at a park level is you know, rides, lifeguards, those kind of things fall under operate operations at a at a corporate global level is is truly operations. You know, whether it's working with our food and beverage team or our revenue producing teams and and making sure that whatever policies and procedures we're looking at for the operating divisions fits everybody, not just those that sort of make sense at a park level. So um, how we're talking about COVID procedures and how that affects our food and beverage stands, our retail locations, as well as our rides, as well as admissions and and security and safety and all that. It's it's looking at it just from such a global level. Yeah. So speaking of COVID, one of the things that we are curious uh, about with a lot of different places is what are those things that you've put in place because of COVID that you think might stick around? Um, You know, we had reservations for a while and and masks and those type of things. What do you see as 2022, 2023, things that we might still be doing at that time? You know, I think that um, COVID challenged us to be more virtual and um, be more accepting of electronic opportunities, uh, at, like you said, with reservations. And while I don't know that reservations will hold long term, there there are things about you know is there better ways of queuing? Is there better ways of communication? Is there better ways of selling tickets or ca- going cashless and and just all sorts of things where um, you want to eliminate unnecessary touch points and try and make sure that how you're doing your business is to the benefit of the guests from an interaction standpoint and also from your associate standpoint as well. I think that um, before the pandemic, we were very much always, everything had to be in person, everything had to be done at moment by moment. And I think, you know, COVID of course, forced us to step back into a more virtual world with online training programs and that sort of thing. And I, I don't think solely doing one or the other will ever be right. Um, I think that there is a lot of um, efficiencies that can be gained with online um, training or um, online um, communication with the guests, but at the end of the day, it doesn't replace that face-to-face interaction. So, but I, I would say embracing technology and how it can make our lives more efficient, either from a guest or associate standpoint, is probably what's going to be lasting across the industry with uh, after COVID. Mm-hmm. 
Bridget, I'm curious, out of all those things that you mentioned there, how much of those were in conversation leading into the pandemic and then took a much bigger spotlight? You know, it was one of the things Matt and I had even been talking about as, you know, as early as last spring and, and summer, that there were so many emerging trends in the industry that were at their different stages of, you know, of emergence that just basically got, got fuel on their fire of saying, well, now this is absolutely critical versus a nice to have. So curious, what was, what was something that was a nice to have prior to the pandemic that, you know, that then really became absolutely critical? Gosh, that's a, t that's a tough question. I think that um, I, to, to go back to your initial question, I think that probably nothing that was implemented during COVID was anything that we hadn't at, as an industry at some point talked about whether it was uh, tablets out in the field for training checklists or was it virtual queuing or automated systems. I, I think that's that's all part of it. But I, I, I would say at the end of the day, integrating our background systems, like our maintenance systems and our training databases and all that, bringing that together, it, at least from our standpoint, would be what the, the best gain of it was, because I think it, 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 it's, it sort of pushed us outside of the nest and, and, and made us embrace it. And I think that, uh, you know, we're just, we'll, we'll benefit that from that for years to come. Yeah. Uh, Bridget, I'm wondering if we can back up just a little bit as you talked about your, um, your path, as, as Josh mentioned, is a very interesting path. And I totally agree. Um, you kind of mentioned that you went to this area and then they thought, well, I should go to this area. And, and was it tough to embrace all those challenges and all those different places? Or were you like, yes, I want to go do something new. I'm just curious that because I think a lot of people as they get potential opportunities put in front of them, like, eh, I'm not really ready for that. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of step back. So I'm curious what your thought process was looking back. No, that's, a, that's actually, a, that's a really good question. I think that, um, I, I am, I, I, I would hesitate to tell say that I'm an expert on anything. Um, I, I am surrounded by experts and I have a lot of people who know a lot of things. My path did not progress because I was the expert at what I did. Um, my my background and and what I'm good at is leadership. It's about finding the best in the people around us. And I think that um, you know whether it, it was you know when I went to the water park and bringing a team together. I, I I guess all the times I've ever moved, it was about team management and team leadership and and really trying to take that that leadership step to the next level. And so I, uh, there have been a lot of challenges along the way. I think um, when I went to the water park, I had, you know, again, I, I, I worked in admissions and there was a gate at both parks. And as the admissions manager, that was my whole contact with the water park. And they're like, well, Bridget knows the water park. She can run the water park now. And I had to take swimming lessons and I had to take lifeguard lessons and I had to go and take a CPO class. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a certified pool operator. And I had to take all of these trainings just to even learn. And I, I'll never forget, um, it was about a week out of the my first year at the water park and some one of the lifeguards was having trouble starting um, a, a vacuum, uh, a gas vacuum. And he's like, hey, how do you start that? And it's like, I, like I, I don't know how to start a gas vacuum. And he said, you're the park manager. And it really like cut me deep. Like I, I'll never forget like my ability to be the park manager. And I think what I, the lesson I took away from that is I didn't get put at the water park because I knew how to start a gas vacuum. I knew I was put at the gas, I was put at the 
part because I knew how to find the people that can make the gas vacuum work, right? And I think when I went to safety and security, I I learned how I, I took an EMT class and I got my EMT license. I got I was uh, trained to be a loss prevention agent, and I think it's about not trying to be an expert, but understanding that you are responsible for the people that look up to you as a leader. And so you need to uh, embrace and, and immerse yourself in the information and make sure that you have as much knowledge as you can get in order to support their activities. Yeah. What were some of the ways that you were able to really accelerate that learning curve of going to aquatics, of making sure that you were seen in the position of maybe sometimes that you were the expert, even though you were, you know, looking to make sure you were building those teams of the experts to, uh, you know, manage the gas vacuum and, and things like that, of being able to kind of quickly get over that hump and make sure that you were able to establish yourself in that role. You know, I think um, when I when I first I was so young, I was so young when I first started this transition through the water park and on up. And um, I thought that, again, that gas vacuum, I thought people expect me to know this stuff. And how can they I've only been here for X, Y, Z days and months, years. And how could they expect me to learn this? And I, th I think what I learned is to not be so defensive about my my lack of knowledge, like I didn't get put here because of my knowledge. I got put here because I can track down the information. I'm good at assimilating information. And I think that I had to learn how to check my own ego and let my desire to know everything go and embrace my desire to at least understand how it works. And I, I would say of anybody, the hardest transition is, is letting, letting your ego go and just... It, accepting the reason why you're there and doing the best you can at that particular job and, and stop trying to own everything because it's, you're just never going to be successful at it. Yeah. So using that experience, how do you now inform and inspire and teach the young leaders that you're working with to do that very same thing? Uh, because sometimes time is the best teacher, right? And just experience. But um, sometimes, as Josh said, we want to accelerate that path. So, you know, what are some of those lessons or, or ways that you're teaching your young leaders to go through that same thing? I think some of the things um, we... we we want to take we want to take the time right to understand um, the people who look up to us as leaders. I would say that the one thing um, that you need to understand as a leader is that it's not about you. Um, it's about the team that works for you, and you have to focus on making sure they have the tools they need to be successful. Um, and again, take yourself out of it. What what can you if, if somebody isn't um, doing exactly what they should be doing, is it because they lack the knowledge? Is it because they lack um, the necessary equipment? What is it? And did I not communicate well enough? And so I think when you talk to future leaders, that's the like focus on giving people the tools they need to be successful. And that and 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 if you can do that and make sure the team has everything, that team is going to push you up. That team is going to lift you up and 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 carry you forward. Um, I think the other thing is, um, you know, talking about leadership principles. 
I think that everyone should just focus on leaving the world a better place than they found it. Um, I think, again, some people get so focused on what, what do I get out of it? What's, what's the glory of it in it? And, and honestly, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't matter to me that anyone ever remembers my name after I walk away. What I want to make sure is that the world is just one step closer to the best it can be because I was there, right? So leave the world a better place, focus on the team and not yourself. And um, the one other thing I would probably say is avoid single points of failure. A lot of times um, new leaders think, oh, I've got to take this on. I've got to hold this. I got to, it, I'm responsible. So I'm the one that has to do this and, and don't delegate it because I, you know, I, because I'm the one responsible for it. At the end of the day, what happens is you create single points of failure. If, if you're not there that day, or you miss a phone call or an email, uh, the world starts to crumble around you. And I think as a leader, it's your responsibility to make sure that the world functions when you're not there, um, that the people have the answers or know how to get the answers. Um, the staff know the processes or how to affect the processes in your absence. And, and, and so again, it, it can't just always be about yourself. You have to be able to leave the team and let them be successful without you standing in the, in, in, in the room with them. <laughs> Yeah, we really appreciate that um, uh, that kind of very very detailed, very thorough response to that about making sure that you know the the team and the leadership has the tools to be able to do their job and to be able to succeed, and that make sure that the world can function even when they're not there. I, what I think is really interesting too is you know we talk about this from a leadership standpoint. Uh, I love talking about guest service and guest experience, and a lot of the things that you talked about also I feel like could apply to frontline staff in the way that they deliver their guest service. So it's not always about knowing what all the answers are, but knowing how to be able how to respond to that question, even if they don't, if even if they don't know what the answer is. So do you see that as as a good balance as something that? leaders are able to lead better to their team and the way that frontline employees or any employee is able to even better serve the guest. Oh, absolutely. If Man, if, if uh, an associate at a food stand has a problem with the register and every time they have to call a supervisor and the supervisor has to come and fix it, you are disengaging with your guests because they're having to wait for the supervisor. Your associate feels helpless in the situation. The supervisor is probably frustrated because they've just had to drop what they're doing and move that. And so you, you go back to that, you know, uh, did the person, <laughs> what tools does that person need to be successful? Is something wrong with the register? Are we not communicating well enough with the guests related to the product? Do we need to turn over some control to from the supervisor to the line level associate? And can we provide the associate a route in which to fix that problem or fix it so they don't have that problem again? Uh, because at the end of the day, that's going to be better for that person. And from a guest service standpoint, um, I think Gosh, it, uh, an easy one, right? The dropped ice cream. If a guest drops an ice cream, it shouldn't take a member of the management staff to say, give them another scoop of ice cream, right? Um, and so one of the things that, that we at, at 
King's Dominion, we have pillars of, uh, that we have for our culture. And, you know, every question can be solved with answering the question, you know, put people first. Did you put the person first? That's, you know, that'll lead you to the right decision. Uh, you know, do the right thing. It is, is just giving them another piece of ice cream going to fix the situation? And should that take an act of God or can the person just give them another scoop of ice cream? And it, everything has to, you know, everything has to be in reason. I think of, um, a long time ago I had an area manager. It's a famous story amongst our staff back then. Um, she had a guest situation and um, she tried to solve it in the best way she could. She says, well, I'll just get pizzas for every one of the, well, every one of you. And they're like, well, there's 30 of us. And suddenly we've just handed out 10 large pizzas or whatever. And we came back and we're like, maybe 10 pizzas was a bit excessive. But you know what? It, we, she was empowered to solve it at the time. We coached through maybe a little bit more appropriate problem solving or whatever and move on. But don't ever chastise someone for trying to solve the problem. I, again, provide them the tools they need to be successful, support their decisions and guide them to the right way. And it will all work out. But you have to you have to let the team be empowered to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, Bridget, as, as Josh was just talking about guest experience, something something kind of occurred to me that I'd love to get your perspective on. In a lot of uh, places, we say that, you know, for, for a frontline associate or team member, we don't want them to say, I don't know to a guest. We always want them to have the answer and that kind of thing. And I wonder, as people are moving up the leadership ladder, if that's still the right advice, right? Because you've just mentioned that you're not the expert at everything. You've, you're asking a lot of questions. It's okay for, I think, for someone that's learning to be a leader to say, I don't know, but I'll go find out the answer. So I would just like to get your perspective as people are kind of moving up, you know, is it okay to say, I don't know? Is it okay to ask a lot of questions? Is it okay to, you know, I think if, if you're putting your ego aside, you're able to do that. But if you're not, then you're probably thinking, I have to have the answer. And that's where that single point of failure comes from. Yeah, I think that, um, we should never just say, I don't know, and throw your hands up, like find somebody else. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. I think that, uh, somebody put it best. It might've been Richard Ray, right. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> you don't say, I don't know. You say, let's learn together, you know, and, and even, even in my position, uh, I think it's okay to say even, my position or at a, at a line level position, it's okay to say, I don't know, but let me find out. I don't know, but let's find out together. I don't know, but f solve the situation because the second time somebody asks you, that's when it starts to not be okay. Um, that you don't know it, it, it's, and again, it just, sometimes it's just understanding the philosophy of, of the, it without understanding the actual answer. Um, but uh, no, I, I think it's okay to admit that you don't always have all the answers, but I don't think it's okay to just say somebody else's problem. That's what you need to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. So Bridget, switching gears just a little bit, wondering if we could travel here from Virginia up to Ohio and talk about Geauga Lake for, uh, you know, for a minute. Matt and I were chatting uh, before recording. We both have fond memories of, of visiting that park. Um, I also distinctly remember when the announcement was made of the acquisition and I, it was such a quick turnaround time from becoming a Six Flag Park to a Cedar Fair Park. Can you talk about that conversion process? I think it was only a few weeks or so. And 21 and days. 20, there you go. A few weeks. Yeah. Uh, what were those 21 days like? 
What? Oh my gosh. I, there are a lot of us that went gray that summer. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it was, it was, it was, it was a lot of it was a lot of work and a lot of detail that went into that, and I think that um, it was just a conversion from one park chain to another, and everything from just the basic signage down to the equipment, the teams. Um, that was a particularly tough transition because it had been um, an animal park, and that all the the whole animal section was eliminated, and so um, I think there were. Um, some hurt feelings within that, uh, rightly so, because of the way the transition happened. But um, at the end of the day, it was just coming in and, and setting all that aside and saying, what do we need to do to get this park ready? And gosh, there's, there's still a dozen or more of us that were at Geauga Lake that summer that, are, that, are, that have moved up into um, some pretty important roles here with Cedar Fair. And look, we look back on that very fondly because we all came together as one team and, and made it happen. And uh, not even at Geauga Lake, but we were pulling operating manuals from other parks because we had, um, we had an interruption in the continuity of knowledge with our operating manuals. And so we had to do that and, and everything. But, uh, I, you know, that day we opened this, the satisfaction that the team had with that, um, it, Incredible, formed a lifelong bond with those of us who worked there that uh, I, I imagine will never be broken just because it was such a unique experience. But 21 days is probably, um, that's a pretty narrow time frame to change everything over, but uh, it, it definitely was a, an accomplishment for sure. Yeah, growing up in um, nearby Chagrin Falls, Orange Village, Ohio, in that area, um, Geauga Lake and SeaWorld were my growing up parks, and we would go twice a year to Geauga Lake, twice a year to SeaWorld. This is even before Premier owned um, Geauga Lake. Um, and, and now, of course, it's, you know, you can only see it as drone footage over, you know, what, what used to be. Can you describe that property, Geauga Lake specifically, and what it was like for people who have never been there? Oh God! I mean, it was it was beautiful. You know, obviously, um, at, when it started, and you can read the history online, but essentially, it was an amusement park on one side of the lake, and it was uh, Sea World on the other side of the lake. And at some point, they were connected together, and they made this giant C shape. And then across the lake, they ended up running these giant. Um, steamboats back and forth to, to travel um, with the guests. And there was at some point a walkway that you could walk back and forth. Uh, but it really was, it was a beautiful park. Um, it, I think it started over a hundred years ago as a fishing stop and, and it grew up. I remember getting there and someone said, oh yeah, there's a, there was a roller rink here at some point and the floor is still there. You want to go see it. And I went over and it's just warehouses and there there's boxes and boxes and you can see the curved inlaid floor where the roller rink was. And it was just, just incredible. The amount of history. Um, and, and I think even after, um, when, when they closed the SeaWorld aspect down and transition that into the water park, uh, you, they use some of the, of course, the landscaping with the SeaWorld property. They use some of the glass in some of the areas that, that was there before to sort of form the back of some of the pools. They just, they, it really was just a lovely park and unfortunate that, that what happened to it in the, in the history of it, but uh, it was, it was, it was beautiful. It really was. Yeah. 
you mentioned that it's the C shape, and I remember that, and I remember always wondering why it wouldn't be a complete circle. And I had heard rumors, but never really fully understood why why it couldn't connect back on itself. Well, first of all, it fell in in multiple counties, um, <laughs> and and also um, the C sort of sort of hit um, kind of at the ends came at the end of the lake, and so there was just a little tiny town of Aurora at the at the edge of that, and so it was sort of pinned in by you know the infrastructure of the city that was already there that you couldn't complete the circle around it. But um, there's also a lot of swampland in the area that could never be developed. It's probably still not developed, but. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it was I, I, it was interesting to take the boats back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember going to Jug Lake for the first time without my parents. I went with a, a friend of mine from school and, you know, we were, I don't know, 12, 13 years old, something like that. And I remember, you know, we're riding the antique cars. And he kept getting off of the car and running around and everything. And we got kicked off the antique cars. But it was it was it was a cool memory because it was like I said, it was the first time I was there without my parents. Um, Can you think back to some of those those memories that you have, like formative experiences? Not that I want to get kicked off of any other attractions, (laughs) but just any of those those memories that have kind of stuck with you and kind of you go back and say, this was the, the beginning of why I love this industry. I golly. That's a you know, I every one of us I'm sure has a story just like you. I think back um, when I was old enough to remember, um, but young enough, I was still on a children's ride. And I remember my parents, we stayed just because we lived far enough away from it. It was a bit of a drive that we stayed till just the wee hours of the end of the evening. And we were riding this um, ride called the Bounceroos at Worlds of Fun. They took it out several years ago, but these giant kangaroos and you sat in their belly basket and it basically went around a circle you can go up or down in it and I remember it was I the it was so late it was probably closed at 10 o'clock or something of that sort when you're six or seven that's a big deal but um I remember she the the operator made us get out and and go all the way around to the entrance every time and it was silly because you just go out the exit run as fast as you can as a six-year-old, get back in line. And you could feel like, I look back on it as an adult today, and I'm sure you could just see her just like roll her eyes every time (laughs) we got back in that ride. And as soon as that park closing announcement, she was like, sorry, we're closed. But I I think back to that, there's such a strong memory because my brother and I had so much fun just riding this simple ride over and over again. And that young lady, as annoying as we were, smiled at us every time and out we went. She did her spiel every time. She said goodnight to us every time, probably prayed we didn't get back on the ride again, but we did. And, and uh, you know, I think that the the impact that our our associates at a line level have on memories that last for 25, 35, 45 years, what a fantastic thing to be involved with that, that, uh, that we, I mean, we're not here, yeah, we make money, sure, that our stockholders are very pleased with that, but man, what we're doing is making memories, family memories, lasting memories, and it's as simple as I, to this day, remember her spilling to us every time because at six, you think, why does she keep doing that every time? And, um, you know, doesn't she know you were just on here? Ha ha, we fooled her. Like, <laughs> but uh, I, I just think that um, it's 
there's no better industry to work in. There's no, there's no place where you have just that experience every moment. And it, and it isn't, doesn't matter what yesterday was like. It doesn't matter what tomorrow is. It doesn't even matter what an hour from now is. It's just that one moment in time that whether it's a ride operator or a lifeguard or a person at a food stand or a security officer or an EMT, the, 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 just the memories that you make that these people are able to carry with them for the rest of their lives, just outstanding. That will, I, I could, I was hooked. I was hooked from the, from that. I was hooked. I've always been hooked. <laughs> so does that influence what you're looking for when you're walking around King's Dominion? And, you know, of course there's, there's a, I'm sure a very long checklist probably going through your mind of making sure that, you know, from an operational standpoint that everything's firing on all cylinders, but I've got to imagine that, that memory that you just shared or similar ones like that are what you're looking for to make sure that they are happening to as many guests as possible every single day of operation, right? I, a thousand percent. And I think that's what, um, again, as a leader, you have to remind the leaders around you as well, because you can't lose that moment, right? You, you, you have to, even though the numbers and the efficiency and the checklist and everything are so Im- critically important, critically important, it's that every moment. So yeah, when I'm out in the park and I see the person at the food booth, just trying to get the line through as fast as possible, but it's when I I had a guest stop me the other day, she said the the line was, the line was long and we were all trying to get the drinks, but that associate, every time somebody walked up to the counter, looked up, made eye contact and said, how are you doing today? And just the sincerity of it struck that guest enough that she tracked me down to tell me about it because as much that efficiency is important. And that's, that's what our guests need to, because they want to enjoy their day and get out of lines, but it's that eye contact and that engagement, even if it's just for that moment that it, it, no, no efficiency, no, none of that matters in that moment. You have to engage with your guests and it's, it's worth it every time. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look for it every time. Yeah. So Bridget, can you talk a little bit about your associates and your staffing? Because everybody's been dealing with staffing issues this year. So what have you found to be working to get people to come to work, to get them to stay? Um, just kind of walk us through what you found. Yeah. You know, I think that, I'm going to be a little bit cliche here. I think that engagement and appreciation goes so far when we're talking about what makes people stay. Um, Sure, paying an industry wage is important. Uh, Absolutely, it's good to provide good hours, but I think you have to sometimes um, have the guts to make a tough decision. So here at King's Dominion, we had to limit our operating hours. And that's that's really tough on our guests because they want a longer day. They want to have more opportunity to come to the park. But because we don't, we would be putting our associates in, in, a, in a negative place if we tried to do a, a longer day. And so um, I think because we made that tough decision of shortening our day, um, it allows more opportunity to have our associates at full staff here. And they don't, they feel like they can breathe through the day and they're getting their time off and they're getting their lunch. And it also gives uh, our management team the opportunity to engage with them more and, and just make, make sure people feel appreciated and seen. Again, we talked before about numbers and checklists and everything, just to take a moment and see people it, at the end of the day, if, if you, when we ask our associates what, what they like most about it, 
uh, almost unanimously, we'll hear the how they engage with their coworkers and how they feel um, one, one with their team. And and at the end of the day, that's that's why I worked here. That's what my parents look back on fondly. And that's twenty or thirty years from now is what what our our associates are going to look look at and and really put as one of their number one priorities. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Everything that you just described. Uh, but when talking about you know the tough decisions such as limiting operating hours and then all of the all of the benefits that you're able to actually do from that of being able to engage your staff and and provide you know an, an even better place to work. Looking at it from the guest perspective, I can imagine that there might be some resistance to that or maybe some negative feedback that comes from that. So how do you take everything that you just shared with us right there and then take that reducing operating and put that positive spin in a guest facing way that allows the, you know, the, the larger market to be able to also have that same appreciation. Gosh, well, I think, uh, you know, we were, we were very transparent about the decision about cutting our hours and, and, and we identified that they're, um, you know, from a staffing standpoint, we want to meet the mean, the needs of our guests. I think what we found when I've engaged on a, a individual conversations with our guest population is that they appreciate that we are taking care of our associates because our associates then are taking care of our guests. And so there is a payoff to that, that the guests can realize in, in, in person that they, that they feel it, that, are, you know, we've had a number of comments where the associates are just seem happier or glad to be at work or they're engaged with our associate or our guest. And I think it's because of that. Um, again, it's also with the, I think that we see a higher level of um, guest engagement with us as well. I think that our guests are, we have a higher attendance in, you know, in July than we were expecting. We're having a higher number of guests renewing their season passes. And you think, oh my gosh, I've just cut the, the operating hours. I just cut a third of our operating hours out. And yet our guests are realizing the success of that decision with our associates and are in, engaged with returning and excited about next year. And by gosh, uh, it's our intent to have a full product in every way, shape or form. And uh, I feel like because we've provided such a good experience for our associates, uh, we are going to have more of them return and our, just the guests reap, the, reap that reward because they can see it, the engagement with the associates themselves. You know, and now I, I will say we did, you know, for, for e easy, low hanging fruit for the industry, I'll say if we did address our wages. We, we uh, increased our wages to um, be at least at or at the, at the top of, or at least equal to um, the, hi the higher level wages within our area. Um, we added premium pay on top of that for our, our critical time. For instance, we're going into haunt. And so we added a premium pay for those for those weeks that were open for haunt, um, associate events where we added a lot more associate events than we had last year. We hired a bus. We, there used to be um, a city route that would come at, um, here. And so uh, associates from the city could ride the bus here. And that route was eliminated because of COVID, because of staffing purposes. And so we, we actually hired a bus to be able to bring our associates here. And so there's all those you know, th those things that from to be able to apply very easily from a park to park, um, what we paid for in increased wages, uh, we saved in decreased labor hours and decreased turnover. 
Very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, Bridget, today as we are recording this, this is National Roller Coaster Day. So it would be um, you know, a total miss on our part if we didn't address the elephant in the room, which is what's your favorite roller coaster? Oh, golly. Um, I would have to say the Dominator here at King's Dominion. Um, I, it's just such a smooth ride. Also, it came from Geauga Lake, so it has a special place in my heart. Um, and so I, I, I think that's probably my favorite roller coaster. If I was going back in all time, um, you know, I, I think that while wooden coasters tend to not be quite as smooth as some of our steel brethren, I, there is nothing like getting on a, a, a wooden roller coaster and the personality that comes with it. So, uh, no matter how bad of a day I was having, I could always get on the Timberwolf at Worlds of Fun and bring us just bring a smile to my face because, uh, just you feel the personality of that coaster through your very core and uh, you know, you can appreciate it. So those are my two top. Awesome. Well, I feel like we could easily just deviate this down into a, a topic of, of our favorite roller coasters here on National Roller Coaster Day. Uh, both Matt and I have talked about ours several times and they're both Cedar Fair rides too. So, uh, but in the, well, mine is Millennium Force. Oh, <laughs> <Matt> is, uh... <laughs> Mine's Fury. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although I, I do have to say that if I was going to go with wooden coasters, uh, again, they would be at Cedar Fair Parks because there's the Beast, uh, wow. Kings Island, of course, and but Renegade at Valley Fair, that is a great ride. <laughs> it's a good coaster. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, Bridget, this has been uh, such a fun conversation. Uh, as we wind this down, if people want to. Uh, hold of you if they have any follow-up questions or you know if they want to learn more about king's dominion if they don't know enough already where would you send them <laughs> well you know the easiest way of course is the king's dominion website there's a contact us page and they could address a comment to me directly through there and we'd make sure that the answer gets through uh from that um but uh you know, we would love to answer any additional questions or give any shout outs that uh that are out there for sure Awesome. Well, Bridget, thank you again so much for your time. This was a fascinating conversation. And uh, just want to just want to remind everybody out there watching and listening that we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.